Welcome to Bible Over Brews, deep thoughts firming over time and text. I'm coming at you, Aaron Crude Juice Viverka, and I've got Gumby. Hey, what's up? And I've got Brian Godawa. Yo, yo. We're going to be talking about patriarchs tonight. <laughs> so, first we're going to be starting out with this really, really interesting bourbon by Watershed. I didn't know Ohio had bourbon, but it turns out they do. This little place has a straight bourbon whiskey finished in apple brandy barrels and blended with straight bourbon whiskeys. To create this balanced blend, we finish hand-selected bourbon whiskey in barrels previously used to age our very own apple brandy and combine it with straight bourbon whiskey, yielding an unparalleled, expertly balanced drinking experience. Our careful blending and layering of flavors builds unique complexity, bold flavor, and rich mouthfeel. We hope you enjoy sipping it as much as we enjoy creating it. And that's from our friends down there over at Watershed Distillery. Oh, man. <laughs> and Brian, you have some writers as well. Yes, well, the good gentleman at Bible Over Brews sent me Lockwood Distilling Company. Some straight bourbon whiskey made in Texas. You can still see it's frosted there. I like it cold. That looks good. Uh, so you guys sent it to me. Thank you. And I so I thought I'd be sharing uh, a glass with you. Sounds All excellent. Right. Cool. Gumby, do you want to All right from the go, let's see. This is, ooh, okay, it's got a nice amber. Actually, it's it's a bit more brown. Yeah, this one's a bit more brown. It's it's almost a mahogany, mm. I think, right? <laughs> it's almost a mahogany. Ooh. Yeah, that smells delight delightful. Yeah. That's right on the top of it. I can smell a little bit of cherry, right? It's definitely got that sweet top to it. Yeah, and you know what? I can smell the apple they're talking about. Hmm. Mine smells like alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's that's rich. That's rich. That's complex. It has a nice body too. So if you you give it a nice little swish, nice little nice little swirl, it's thick. It's got really nice body. It is complex. Yeah, I like that. I like the spice to it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's almost a. I don't know, uh, an oakish flavor, mm -hmm. a little bit of toffee. I do taste oak. Yep. Yeah, a little bit of a toffee overtone, tiny or tiny bit of orange zest. The spice is right on front, so it. it... Mm. Okay. When you smell it, I'm kind of surprised by that because mm. it smells sweeter. <clears throat> yeah, agreed. That's that's nice. It's a good bourbon. Maybe a touch of honey. Yeah. 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 I can see that. Watershed, Ooh. good job. <laughs> and Lockwood distilling straight bourbon whiskey. It tastes yummy. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what flavors are you getting? A robust yum yum flavor. <laughs> I just don't have the words that you guys do. It's just it's good whiskey, man. It's good. You know, this would go really good with some Coke instead of Jack Daniels, instead of Jack and Coke. Just right, yeah. right. Could be a lockwood. Could be a, a lockwood and coke. Yeah, but seriously, it is. It is a nice, tasty. I don't have the words like you do, or the the ability to to discern the subtle flavors. Let me try. That's okay. We cheat. <laughs> yeah, 
Is there a I don't sp- know, man. Is there a spice to it? No, no, which oh, is good. Okay. I don't like spicy. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, being from Texas, it probably has more out. of that. I was going to say, being from Texas, it probably has more of that straight like oak flavor. Maybe. Maybe so. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, the ones I've had from Texas before it definitely had a harder oak flavor to them. It's like tasting the barrel. You know, yes. you co- coffee beans, you can taste the bean. Oh, you can yeah. taste the barrel. I like that. Yeah, you that's absolutely it. can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I'll work on it. I'll, I'll, I'll look up my adjectives for describing whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we cheat. We watch uh, all kinds of cool YouTube videos. <laughs> we watch the experts. <laughs> To help us discern things. Sure. Smart, smart thinking. <laughs> so, Brian, you have a new story out. I do. Pray tell. So, I now to to give it a backdrop. This one is a the third in the series, right? Yeah, it's a new novel called <clears throat> Moses Against the Gods of Egypt, and it's a retelling of the story of Moses, which uh, you know is one of the most beloved stories of all time. Um, however. Uh, my unique take on it is that I incorporate the Watcher paradigm, which is uh, part of the series Chronicles of the Watchers that I'm that I'm write, currently writing. But it's really the premise of all my series. They kind of all integrate together: Chronicles of the Nephilim, Chronicles of the Apocalypse, and Chronicles of the Watchers. Right. And actually, Chronicles of the Watchers is sort of like I'm I'm retelling some stories that I didn't get in get to in Chronicles of the Nephilim. Right. Yeah. So for instance. Um, I have the story of uh, Abraham, and then I jump to Joshua, uh, and then Caleb in in the Chronicles of the Nephilim. And the reason why I did that was because I was looking, mostly I was trying to find stories that had giants in them, in the Bible, explicitly, right? And I didn't really see that in Moses, so I sort of moved on. And um, But it was kind of a mistake because, and I'll, I'll explain in a second, but um, and of course, then, you know, when you go to Joshua and they enter the promised land, it's filled with giants, right? So, um, but what happened was, you know, I did realize that there is a the spiritual element of Moses, but what really launched me to go back and do this story, and so you could literally fit it in, in the Chronicles of the Nephilim, you know what I mean? You could read the novel standalone, or you could f- read it in, in chronological order with the Nephilim series, but nevertheless... Um, so what, what, uh, what got me going was uh, Exodus 12, 12, it says, God is talking about the plagues and he says, I will execute judgment upon all the gods of Egypt. And that was really fascinating because, okay. And it's context of the plague. So the plagues are judgment on the gods of Egypt, not just the people in the land, right? But the gods, and of course, if the gods are just imaginary, made-up things that aren't real, why would God speak that way, right? Right. Well, you know, people can sort of say, well, he's just he's speaking metaphorically or whatever. But of course, I think that there that you know, as we've talked about in previous um, you know talks, that the Bible seems to indicate, you know, certainly in the Deuteronomy thirty-two worldview, that uh, the false gods of the nations um, have some kind of demonic spiritual reality behind them. Now, what that exactly looks like, nobody knows. 
but there is that indication that they are there are demonic entities to some degree behind them. Does yeah. that mean that all the ancient gods of the ancient world, you know, the hundreds of gods in Egypt, the hundreds of gods in Canaan and Mesopotamia, does that mean they all had actual demons behind them? No, I don't believe so. Um, it's a system that they created to, you know, uh, to 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 sort of keep men in bondage away from the living God. But nevertheless. Deuteronomy, um, you know, talks about this notion of, uh, you know, when the when Israelites worshipped false gods, they were sacrificing to demons. So if that's true, then then how do these, you know, the premise that I kind of came up with was, what if the ancient gods of pagan nations like Egypt, what if they were these real demonic entities, but who were they? Well, maybe they were these fallen angelic sons of God that the, that the uh, uh, book of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 talks about, right? And, you know, in those ancient days, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, you know, were beautiful and they forced them to marry and they had, they had children and they were the Nephilim, the giants of old, right? So it's like, okay, so what are these sons of God and their spiritual entities? You do that study in the Bible and you see their spiritual entities, but not only that, but then in Deuteronomy 32, where um, eight, eight through 10, where it talks about how at the Tower of Babel, when God separates the nations and the languages, it says that he, he, um, he uh, appoints the nations under the authority of the sons of God. And, but he keeps Jacob, Israel, as his own. So he's the watcher God over Israel, but he, he appoints these nations under the authority of these fallen sons of God, why? Because these nations were worshiping false gods. So he's like, I'm going to give you over to them, right? Mm. And so the premise here is that what if those gods of the ancient world had some demonic reality behind them? What if they were these fallen watcher beings that Daniel talks about, right? Daniel 4 talks about how there are, are watchers who watch over the nations. And then Daniel 10 talks about how there these are these, these spiritual principalities are like princes over the various nations. So the ancient world belief was that, um, <clears throat> that for the earthly authorities, kings, nations, sometimes cities, they had over them, linked to them, spiritual principalities and powers. So when there was a war on earth, they conceived that there was a war in heaven. You know, thus you have this notion of... Um, in the story of Jezebel or, you know, Elisha, the prophet, I'm sorry, where, you know, the enemies of Israel coming down upon Jerusalem and, and, and Elisha prays that his servant would, God would open his eyes so that he would see the spiritual armies in heaven supporting them. Right. right. So if there's a war on earth, there's a war in heaven. Why? Because the spiritual entities over them are linked. And so that's their worldview. And, and my whole, all my series, including Chronicles, the watchers sort of incorporates that, watcher paradigm, as I call it, these spiritual watchers over the nations and they're, you know, and they're bad guys. Right. And so, so much like the mafia would be that, yeah, they have a plan to draw worship away from Yahweh unto their false gods, right. Keep man in bondage to their idolatry and sin. But at the same time, they have their own sort of uh, um, struggles of power, Right, they're they're jockeying for power amongst themselves because even though they have a kind of you know kind of united goal in fighting Yahweh, nevertheless they're created beings with with wills. They have free wills of their own, mm -hmm. and therefore they're not just going to be 
automatons. This is one of the things I've always thought of that was a mis- misunderstanding of a lot of common Christian notion is we tend to see the, the demonic world as this unified army of, mo- of evil, right? That's set out to destroy the church or to destroy God, right? And yet it's sort of like, like they're all in perfect harmony, right? But no, why would they be? They have a hive mind, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. sure. Now, there's an element of a collective, sure, the collective goal to fight Yahweh. But if they're creatures that have their own wills, of course, they would want to have their own goals as well. And so I come up with, um, you know, some some fictional storylines that incorporate the ancient pagan gods in a spiritual sense and show them not to be, uh, you know, some kind of independent existing deities, but they're actually these fallen watchers masquerading as the gods of the nation, of the nations. So in the Moses story, um, while I'm retelling the Moses story, which by the way, it's not as familiar as people might think it would be. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but I'm also showing what might it look like when God's judging these gods with the plagues, what would that look like? You know, yeah. um, what does that mean? And the first thing that you think of, which I think many people have have brought up as a possibility is, well, you know, when he does a various plagues, like the plague of frogs, you know, maybe that's uh, attacking the the god of frogs in Egypt, whose name was Heket. Uh, Maybe when the locusts come, maybe there was a god named Senenhem, who was a god of locusts, right? Yeah. So maybe he's judging them that way. But the problem is, and scholars have like pointed this out, the problem is that it doesn't really fit because for several reasons. One is that um, the, there aren't individual gods of, of, of one thing. The gods are a complete system, a collective of different deities, and they all have many different uh, responsibilities that overlap with each other even. So consequently, there's not just a god of frogs. The god of frogs, Heket, is actually not the god of frogs. It's a frog-looking goddess, but she's a goddess of birth, and she protects births. So really, she's not a god of frogs, see? And there are other, there's there's a, um, uh, a mini pantheon of eight deities called the Agdawad, and they all have frog heads or serpent heads, right? So the point here is that, and, and even Senenhem, same thing, you know, they, it's, it's, it's not just a god of locusts, it's god of crops, etc. But then secondly, there's another major problem with this idea, and that is that um, the gods that would be connected to these plagues, most all of them, first of all, all the plagues don't match a specific deity. Like there's no god of flies, right? <laughs> so, so, so there's not... The, the, they're not not all of them point to specific gods, and the ones that do, most of them are minor deities. Like Heket, the frog goddess, is a minor deity. Right. Senenhem, the god of the locust god, is a minor deity. Like we're talking like almost insignificant. Mm-hmm. There's no plague now. There is a plague that addresses Ra, the sun god, right? That's mm-hmm. the darkness. Fair enough. Uh, and the Nile, right? Right. Uh, but other than that, like everything else is an interplay of many different deities, you know, working with each other. And and the problem. Oh, and so the problem is, is that the major gods of Egypt, Isis, Osiris, these are gods also related to Pharaoh as well. Um, uh, Horus, 
there's no plague for them. And it doesn't make sense that God would judge these minor know-nothing deities versus the major deities. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. And then, um, um, so lastly, the, 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 uh, I, I did some research then on who are these gods, you know, which is a fascinating pantheon of hundreds of them, right? Right. And what are their responsibilities? And what I discovered was that um, rather than being individual deities of something, of one thing, they're actually like a system, a collective that works together to maintain the agricultural system of Egypt, right? Mm. So there's not a single god of the Nile. There is a god called Hapi, who you'd think, oh, he's the god of the Nile, right? <laughs> right. Well, no, actually, he's the god of the f- f- inundation of the Nile, which is the f- when it floods. Uh, but there's a guardian god of the Nile called Kanum, but he's also a creator god that creates man from clay. But there's also a crocodile god called Sobek. And crocodile was the, one of the main denizens of the Nile that they worshipped. And the list goes on. In fact, I found about 15 to 20 gods for each of these, related to each of these plagues. Wow. And so the bottom line is, is that when he's, God says, I'm going to judge the gods of Egypt, what I think he was doing is something more theological. He's not attacking individual gods. He's attacking the whole system because Egypt believed that their gods were a system of deities working together to maintain the, you know, the, the uh, creation. They create, they sustain, right? And such. So like the crops and bringing right. life and bringing the seasons and all this kind of stuff. Well, um, uh, what Yahweh, what I think Yahweh, what I discovered Yahweh was doing is what theologians call decreation. What that means is he's actually reverting creation the world around them that sustains them, that they, you know, that they make their living off. He's reverting it back to chaos because one of the dominant motifs of the ancient world was their, their, their philosophy about order versus chaos. So they, Egypt's Egypt believed that their gods worked together. The goddess of, of, um, of the sky, Newt, she arches over the God of, Earth, Geb, is on the bottom. The Shu, the god of the air, is in the air. And then Ra, uh, the god of the sun, uh, rides his solar boat across the back of Newt. So it's this whole picture of these gods working together to maintain and create creation to keep life going, right? And so, the, you know, there's a dozen, 20 gods of the Nile, and all of them, in a sense, what God is saying is, when he reverts that Nile to blood, he's saying, None of you gods have any power over any of these things you claim to have power over. I got, I am Yahweh the creator, and I'm going to prove it by reverting them back to the chaos that makes you look bad. You know, okay. it's basically you can't create order out of chaos. And I'm, I'm returning Egypt to chaos. And he uses chaos elements like flies and swarms are known as, in and of themselves, are understood as chaos, right? Yeah. But also just, you know, boils, diseases. These are all returning creation of chaos. And he's sort of showing that the whole pantheon is completely powerless and without any uh, real substantial ability because he alone is the God of creation, right? Right. But then he's doing one step further. He's saying, not only that, but I'm going to take Israel out of that chaos and I'm going to establish my new order, which is Mount Sinai and the Mosaic Covenant, right? The Mosaic Covenant is, this is my order that I will establish to create my people. So it's like he's, he's, he's creating 
new order out of the chaos of Egypt. And that's sort of the theological theme that's going on with the Exodus. And, you know, there's a lot more to it, but, you know, in, 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 in as few words as, as I can do, which are, <laughs> you know, I'm not very good at, but I'm, I like to s- speak a lot, but um, that's one of the most fascinating elements. And I wanted to depict what might that spiritual world look like when God's bringing that chaos upon them. Right. And so I do that in the book, Moses against the gods of Egypt, you know, and um, I think that's sort of one of the unique angles that I, I bring to the storyline that people have not seen before. I think you, I, yeah, I, I think you uh, speak on it quite well. You, uh, you lay out a whole uh, system of words that paints a picture of what your idea is, the backgrounding, um, the history of it. Um, so yeah, I, I think you're doing a really nice job. Um, I even like the way the book starts because it starts out with two gods fighting right there in the, at the very beginning. <laughs> so it's- yeah, it's Set and Horus. And th- th- what's interesting is what I try to do is the storyline of the gods in the novel is basically rooted in actual mythological stories of Egypt, right? So when you're watching my stories, yeah, it's a fiction, but it's a fiction that's drawn from the actual pagan stories. So yeah. you, when you're reading my stories, you're kind of getting education of the of the stories that they themselves believed in. See, and um, that's just one of my interests because I love to I love to integrate you know um, integrate the two the two worldviews, not in a syncretistic way where I'm melding them together. Is you know the Bible and paganism, but rather. I'm showing how these worlds interacted and how, you know, ultimately, obviously the Bible is superior and Yahweh is superior, but these people exist within an ancient world that, that affects them as well, you know, and, and, and look, the Jews had been in Egypt for over 400 years. Many of them had fallen away and were worshiping the gods of Egypt anyway. So they were more Egyptian than Israel, than Israelite. Right. Yeah. So what would that look like? And, and I want to bring home that Egyptian culture and the context and the other element, which gets to Moses. And that is Moses himself was raised as a Royal Egyptian. So he, his worldview would be rooted in Egypt before he has his own conversion, you know, and there are arguments about when did he know, you know, when did he really learn about Israel? And some people argue that maybe he was taught secretly when he was a child, but there's, you know, I, after my study, I kind of get the, I kind of get the idea. He doesn't learn till late in life. So he's thoroughly Egyptian before he learns he's a Hebrew, a Hebrew. And even when he learns he's a Hebrew, he doesn't learn about Yahweh at all. Until he's 80 years old. Wow. In the, by the burning bush. He didn't even know his name until then, right? Right. So that that's like that's amazing, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that was the other thing about the um um that was was amazing to me was some of these things about Moses that I I had I knew a little bit about, but you know, doing the study helped me realize. Oh, this is not Charlton Heston. You know? <laughs> as much as I loved Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, yeah. um, let my people go. And by the way, Yul Brenner was an awesome Ramses, you know. Oh, yeah. So let it be written, <laughs> so let it be done. However, um, I discovered that Moses was not like that. In fact, Moses had a stuttering problem. It actually says that in the, in the text. Some people know about this. He talks when he's talking to God, he's complaining. He's saying, you know, I, I'm not a man of eloquence, 
speech and another place he says i i have uncircumcised lips well if you look at the hebrew behind his words that he's saying there it's the same language that is used elsewhere in the bible that refers to stuttering or stammering okay. and so he actually had a stuttering problem so that's that's a different picture right and oh, yeah. I, I brought that into the novel hmm. tried to make sense of it as best i could and show how god might deal with that kind of a thing you know so um you know just just learning how human, how how frail and or how faulty Moses was in a good way that we can relate to. You know, he was a man who had an anger problem. I mean, you can even read it between the language as he's interacted with Yahweh himself. <laughs> yes, you he do. has these these skeptical, like to the face of God, he's being skeptical. It's like, who does that, right? Unless you really have an uh, attitude problem, and you know, also mm-hmm. anger comes out in several other. Uh, parts of the story along the way, you know, when he hits the rock instead of speaking to it and stuff, because he's right. angry at the people. And in some ways, you know, you can't blame him for being angry, but I think he probably had a, an anger problem. It seems to me that that's an issue. And uh, I know a lot of us can relate to that, right? Oh, yeah. No, yeah absolutely. Well, I mean, he, he did grow up as a prince in Egypt. So why aren't they listening to me? Right? <laughs> oh, exactly. I was going to say, talk about a major identity crisis. He must be going through, you know, everything, mm-hmm. his whole worldview flipped upside down. Right. And now, this, yeah. this, this, now I have to serve you. Right. <laughs> yeah. And go back to yeah. where I left, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. So it's, um, um, it's fascinating, you know, and, and, um, <laughs> Some other elements about Noah, you know, there's, uh, so, okay, so I have a storyline about him and his romantic relationship with his wife, Zipporah. He right. meets her in Midian and got to have romance. And, um, but, but there's interesting, I also found in my research there, you know, in the Bible, it really jumps over 80 years of his life pretty quickly. You got like two little stories, his birth narrative, the murder of the Egyptian and <laughs> in Midian. And then he, then you get to the burning bush and, and the story starts kind of, right? So there's not much about that life. And, um, but I found that some ancient historians um, who are respected, Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, oh, and Artapanus, okay. who's another, another um, ancient Jewish historian, and they had access to other materials that are no longer extant or existing. Um, and they write uh, about Mo- Moses. There's a couple of little stories about Moses that are not in the Bible that I found very fascinating. Hmm. Maybe they're legend, maybe they're not, but I incorporated into, into my novel. For example, um, it's a story that talks about how Moses was actually a general in the army of oh. Pharaoh. And, um, and he actually, uh, there's an incident where his, he's taking his army through this location and there are flying snakes. And of course we've seen these flying fiery snakes in book of numbers later on. Right. Well, there's a whole story of flying fiery snakes and how he uses his, his strategy to overcome them. And it's really a cool idea because he's flying flying fiery serpents could kill people with their venom and they could decimate an army. So um, I bring that story and how he overcomes them. But there's this whole story about how, in the t- in the days in, in his day, he's a general, and Cush is a nation south of Egypt, and they were there were Ethiopians basically. They were black people, so the Cushites, which were also considered Nubians, or right. um, uh, what's there's another name for it. Can't think of it off the top of my head now, but um, there that whole area, right? 
they were constantly in hostility with Egypt. Well, Moses was going. Oh, wait, we lost you. The opposite of you what you what you think. Oh, you can hear me now. Yeah, we lost you for like two seconds. Oh, Moses is going down the Nile, taking back territory that the Cushite nation had taken from Egypt, right? Okay, and he goes yeah. all the way to the capital city, which is Kerma, and he besieges the city. This is a this is a story that's that's um, these historians write about. And when he's there, the princess of the city sees him and falls in love with him. He's like, ooh, he's he's a beautiful man. And it's funny because it's like, you know, my editor says, this is like, this isn't Disney. The world isn't like Disney where you fall in love at first sight. I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but this is what the ancient history says, right? Yeah. So she falls in love with him. <laughs> and the short of it is, instead of uh, the, 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 the city surrenders and the nation surrenders under the condition that he marries the princess. Okay. So it becomes a marriage treaty, which was a very common thing. Well, that means Moses married a black woman. And lo and behold, there actually is one verse in the Bible that says that in the book of Numbers, it talks about one verse that mentions a Cushite, Moses' Cushite wife, right? So where did this come from, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe it comes from this story or maybe, you know, who knows, who knows, but, but there's all kinds of, I found as I was researching Moses, there's all kinds of controversial things that, you know, I had to really study because I had to commit to some version of the story and there's all, you know, there's arguments on different sides because if, who is this Cushite? He married a black woman. Well, we know he married Zipporah, but she was a Midianite, right? So it's like, where'd this other woman come from? And she was never mentioned, but once in the Bible, what's going on, right? I mean, when he leaves Egypt, would he leave her there to die? Or, you know, it's like, it doesn't make sense. So I, I found a way to, to make sense out of that. Um, one of which is, you know, uh, you know, of course, the woman could die before he leaves. There's there's other possibilities, but maybe they could divorce. Who knows? But um, there's another possibility that Zipporah, as a Midianite, it's also possible. You know, Midianites were tra uh, nomads, so they traveled all over. They traded. Yeah. And, you know, they had multiple wives. So it could be that Jethro may have married so several wives, and one of them was a Cushite. And so Zipporah could be a Cushite. In that, that's a term that could be used not just of the nation, but the fact in indicating that she's a specific-looking type of per person. And they didn't have okay. it wasn't there was no racism back then. People had yeah. different colors, but they didn't they didn't hate people for their race. They hated right, them right. for their gods right. and for their nations. It was nation states and gods, right? But nonetheless, it's like that's how you could easily picture who it is. A Kushite, you know, and a Kushites were not uh, uh, were not Israelites. So that might be one of the reasons why Aaron and Miriam, Moses's brother and sister, complained about her and said, hey, you know, oh. this isn't right what you've done. You know, it's like you're marrying someone outside of the Israelite, right? But I think God is showing his grace towards all people when, you know, Moses gets angry and God curses Miriam for saying that, right? And so, um, and I think it may be possible that Aaron didn't see the promised land partially because of that. There's other reasons too, but... Hmm. Mm. Yeah, so there's these fascinating stories and fascinating things I had to to um, sort of resolve to tell the story the best way I could, and it was just truly it was truly interesting. I wanted to make it as close to the Bible as possible, but I also incorporate other ancient Jewish legends and stuff about Moses and um, and such like that. But one of the other elements of of the Moses story, which first well, first of all, before I go there, I want to say that you know. 
as you read my novel, one of the things I did was I wrote a companion book of all the research that I did, the historical and biblical research. Yeah. And it's called The Spiritual World of Moses and Egypt. Beautiful. So it's a companion book. You can buy at the same time. Everything's on Amazon in ebook, um, uh, paperback, and audiobook. Audiobook for Moses is going to be out within a month. And I would like to point out that if you are a Kindle Unlimited reader, it is available to Kindle Unlimited readers, which I absolutely. (laughs) We pause right there. We're going to do a word from our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to train Muay Thai? Perhaps there's no gyms near you. Perhaps you work odd hours. Perhaps, like a few of us, you don't like germs. Whichever way it goes, you can train online with some of the best instructors from around the country, either live or in class with other students. Living Muay Thai gives you the chance to do all of this and much more. So jump into live classes and on demand right now. LivingMuayThai.com. Texas bourbon. Texas bourbon. <laughs> I'm a one. I'm a one drink guy, by the way. So I'm done. <laughs> I understand. So um. Uh, oh, so one of the most controversial things about Moses, if you're aware of the scholarship of today, is modern day scholarship actually believes Moses didn't exist. He was made up to justify the origins of Israel, mm. right? It's very anti-Semitic, actually, but uh, but they believe there's no evidence of Israelites in Egypt, no evidence of the Exodus, and no evidence of them conquering Canaan. Okay. Why? Because of this. Um, it kind of surrounds the question of who's the, 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 the Pharaoh of the Exodus, see? Because the Bible doesn't say, it just says Pharaoh, 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 right? And traditionally, people have looked in, in the Bible, and the Bible itself gives a hint towards it. First Kings 6.1 says, in the 480th year after the people of Israel left Egypt, Solomon began to build the temple in, uh, yeah, fourth year of his reign. So because we do know roughly when, pretty close to when Solomon, um, Solomon's reign was, then you count back 480 years and it comes to about 1447 BC, you know, give or take 10 years here or there, but who knows. But 1447 BC was always the traditional view. But as modern scholarship progressed, um, and li- most of it being liberal, um, they 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 did take some arguments from the Bible as well to justify this. It wasn't arbitrary. There are some indications that make you think that maybe the Exodus happened later, right? Okay. But I won't. We don't have the time to go through all the details. But just suffice it to say, the dominant view now is that no, it wasn't 1447 BC. It was. It was several hundred years later, around 1250 BC. Actually, so that would be what, two, 200 years later? Yeah. 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 Under the reign of Ramses the Great. That's why we see Ramses in, in the Ten Commandments movie. And even many Bible believing scholars today still believe that it was during Ramses' um, uh, you know, reign that the excess occurred. But that creates some major problems because. That's where you get the idea that there, in that time period, there's no evidence of Jews in Egypt in that time period, 1250. There's no evidence of 40 years later, around 1200. There's no evidence of Canaan being uh, wiped out. 
Now, there, there is a Jericho and the walls did fall, and there is Hazor and several other cities that the Bible says Joshua conquered. But the problem is the archaeological evidence has them occurring like 300 years earlier. So they're saying Joshua's entering a land where those cities aren't even inhabited, right? Mm. So there's all these bad concrete archaeological problems if you believe it's in 1250 BC under Ramses. Okay. But along comes, um, and I want to recommend the documentary series um, because I drew a lot of help from it. It's called um, Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus. That's the first documentary in a series of documentaries. You can get it on Amazon for like four bucks rental, right? It's it's super cheap. You got to watch it. But it changed my whole understanding. And they explore a a lot of these scholarly theories. And they're very fair-minded too, by the way. But um, in that that series, I also was introduced to this um, Egyptologist, a very legitimate scholar named David Roll. And what's interesting is he is not a believer. He's not a believer in, in the Bible and the supernatural. But he believes the Bible's basically historical. So he argues against much of modern scholarship. And lo and behold... Um, if you place, if you look back at the Exodus being in 1447 BC, all of a sudden you do have the evidences they're crying for. There's a famous archaeological site in um, in in the Delta of Egypt that's called Avaris. The ancient city was called Avaris, and it's right where Pyramses was in the Goshen. And Pyramses was supposed to be the city that the Jews built, right? Well, they've ex- they found the city of Varus. They've excavated to multiple layers. And they found a high Semitic population around that 14, 4, 1400 BC time period, right? And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, it goes away. <laughs> and then it's replaced by a different Semitic population that's very different. And so... Um, all of a sudden, you think, well, if the if the Exodus happened in 1447 BC, we have the evidence right there because because Jews were Semites, and at that time, don't forget they had not received they weren't distinctly Israelites. They had not received the Mosaic Law, so you know they were basically living in Egypt for 400 years, and they're Semites, so they had a few differences. But you know, it, but the point is, is yeah, there is evidence of the Jews exactly where the Bible says they were. It's just in the different time period than when modern scholarship said they, they were, right? Then also, if you slide back that time period, all of a sudden, Joshua's entering the promised land, and around 1440 is about, or 1400s, is about when Jericho and all, Hazor and all these other cities, they are destroyed, right? So you do have the evidence, and that's fascinating. But then the problem becomes, well, then who was the Pharaoh back in 1447 BC? And there are multiple, there are several theories within even the Christian community. So I, you know, I've, I've came to one conclusion for my story, but you know, there, there are good, there are good arguments. Some believe it's Amenhotep the second, some believe it's Thutmose right around the same time period. Okay. But David Roll, who's the scholar that I'm following, he argues it's a obscure Pharaoh by the name of Dudemos. But he's not without evidence. It's just he doesn't have a lot. But Dudamos was right at that time period because he also brings in stuff that's above my pay grade. And you'd have to read his stuff. But he basically argues that Egyptian chronology is also not accurate. You have to shift things back several hundred years. 
And what that means is that places the uh, the pharaoh of that time period is not the usual pharaoh people think it is, Amenhotep II, but it's actually Dudamos because it's the end of the second intermediate period of Egypt. And, um, and he argues that that's when the Hyksos came in and invaded Egypt. Who were the Hyksos? The Hyksos were these mysterious, we don't know exactly who they were, but they're basically some kind of Semites of some kind from the north. And there's all different theories, and, and there's theories about when they invaded too, right? And so David Roll argues that, and he shows from history and, and such, what happened was when those Semites were gone from Egypt, archaeologically, the Hyksos came in and invaded and took over Egypt without a fight. And the word Hyksos means shepherd kings. So from the Egyptian perspective, they just they were nomads, Semitic nomads that they called Hyksos, right? Okay, yeah. But that would be the perfect example of what happened. Think about it. If half of the slave force, first of all, if Egypt is ravaged by plagues, right? Yeah. And they lose almost all their food, all their firstborn, they're devastated, right? Then if the entire Egyptian chariot forces and maybe their army and Pharaoh dies in the Red Sea, then it is completely defenseless. Yes. And those nations were always at odds with each other. Literally, the Hyksos could walk right in and take it over without a fight. And lo and behold, that's exactly what they did, right? And there's no other time period that really fits that, that uh, uh, what's the word, um, um, defenseless Egypt that could be right. taken over like that, right? But admittedly, there's all kinds of debates about, you know, when everything happened. And, and the problem is, is Egyptian history, chronology is a mess, and if you if you look into it, you realize there is a general consensus that they follow. But the truth is, is there's so many problems with it that um, theories like David Rolls call they call it the new chronology. There's a whole different way of of understanding chronology of Egypt. Again, it's it could be splitting hairs for some people, but but the point is is that um, there's there's evidence of Dudamos in this time period. There's even references to. There's a historical reference, for instance, to Dudimos okay. by the ancient Greek historian Manetho. So he's writing, you know, back in, um, I don't know, a couple hundred BC, right? And he writes about during the days of Dudimos, God smote Egypt. That's all he says. But it's like, what? This is a Greek number one, right? So what is he talking about? A single God and smoting Egypt. It perfectly fits the plagues of Egypt, right? Not only that, but there actually is an ancient document called the Admonitions of Ipuware, an Egyptian uh, um, uh, sage, an Egyptian okay. sage. And he describes something that pharaohs would never usually describe, which is they would never describe their losses, right? Or they would always turn, like if, if they were lost in a battle, they would say they won it, right? Because <laughs> right. they didn't want to look bad, right? But yeah. this was one manuscript that got through where a sage actually describes Egypt is just flattered by diseases, many of their children dying, and the blood, the Nile turning to blood. It literally says that, right? Now, it's not an exact one-to-one -one description of the plagues, Right. But it's a description of Egypt devastated by plagues of how an Egyptian might look at it and see it from his perspective, right? And that's an actual text that, lo and behold, guess what? It's right around that same time period of 1400s BC. So there is these, there are these fascinating things. And I write about all this stuff in that book, 
the spiritual background, uh, the spiritual world of Moses in Egypt, because I just found it so fascinating. I knew Christians would enjoy to enjoy the historical elements of it, and really learning that there is there is some good, strong, hearty background to the Bible and support for it. You know, it's not just, you know, these liberal scholars are always attacking it. So that was sort of my goal for that. Well, and the companion book's always nice because you could dive deeper into all the research that went in behind the book. So that's, that's, especially when you can um, have actual, uh, you know, papers of academia uh, verifying all of these different stories and building the depth and building the history and the validity of it. So yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that was a goal for that. So as you can see, there's all kinds of, you know, curiosities, controversies. And I try to get help make sense of them through a narrative, which I think is one of the best ways. Look, I mean, if you love reading the Bible research, some of my best my best selling books are the Bible research. Right. Right. But I think personally that reading a good, strong narrative that's rooted in historical research, you know, even though there's fiction, it's rooted in capturing the vibe of what that world was like and being accurate as possible to it. I think that's one of the best ways to really uh, make sense of theology. You know what I mean? Um, And that's one of the things that I do in in my attempt to bring in the spiritual side, I go into their spiritual beliefs, you know? So like there's a vision that someone has of the Egyptian underworld. Okay. Of course, if you read my novels, I deal with the Sheol or Sheol in the Bible, which is, the place of the dead, right? That's yes. where they believe the dead went, both righteous and unrighteous. Now, there wasn't a heaven and hell at that time. They didn't see it that way. But nonetheless, um, the way that the Egyptians saw it was was substantially different. But there's a lot of similarities too. But so I depict this Egyptian underworld through a vision and, and, and the, the journey that the soul would take. And they believed that, um, that it, you know, you would go down this river and you would have to pass through different gates, and you have to say these magic spells or incantations in order to get through the gates, or you'd have to recite the names of the various monsters who were protecting it, right? <laughs> and so this whole notion of magic in Egypt was not so much like we understand it, like magic is sleight of hand, or magic is like, um, you know, abracadabra, you know, uh, and, and you magically create something. Well, that's, it's kind of like that, but it's, if you, if you, study it, you realize it's really not that. What they believed was they they were very word-oriented. They The Egyptians believed that the spoken word was powerful. It could create. Why? Because their god, Ptah, in one of the many creation myths they have, their god, Ptah, created by speaking forth. He spoke forth and he created. And so they believed that they could speak forth the right words in the right order, that they could get gods to do what they did want, or they could do things like heal diseases, etc. Okay. So while it is a kind, you know, you could call it a certain amount of superstition to it, it wasn't just an arbitrary thing. They actually believed it, and they understood the difference between science and their magic, and and meaning they understood there was epilepsy as a physical uh, problem, but then they also believed there were demons and possession and such, or maladies that were that could be revoked by the gods. And so their their uh, use of magic is a magic is a bad translation, I think, actually. But um, okay. so when you get to the magicians, it's the word for magician is sort of like the word for sorcerer. It's a okay. better term. And interestingly, the Egyptian word for their magicians were actually lector priests. 
So they were priests of the temple who, who led in the worship of the gods and also would engage in magic, but not as in like magic tricks, but they would keep track of all the spells to help you as, as you go through the underworld. So you've heard of the, the book, the, the, the Egyptian book of the dead. Have you? Oh yeah. 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 It's a famous book. People have heard of the book of the dead, you know, right. what is it? A b- book <laughs> of spells and all this stuff. Well, what is that about? Well, what it's about is it's a book of spells that you can memorize to recite so that you could go through each of the 12 gates um, of of the underworld as you, uh, when you die, as you reach the hall of Osiris, where you would be judged. And they believe that that's when, when Anubis, that God with a jackal head, he would take your heart, which they believed was the center of the soul. They believe the brain was useless. (laughs) Isn't that funny? (laughs) It was the heart. Everything resided in the heart. So that he would weigh the heart. (laughs) What's that? That's the ancient world. Yeah, exactly. So Anubis would then weigh your heart on the scales of justice against the feather of Ma'at. And Ma'at was basically ordered righteousness. You know, in other words, the way, the order, the way things should be, et cetera, and goodness and such. But Pharaoh was responsible for maintaining Ma'at of Egypt. And that's why he was a god. But what's interesting about this is this is where this idea comes when the Bible talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, that Hebrew for hardening includes with it a notion of making heavy. And what he's doing there, he's sort of mocking them saying, you know, you believe that your heart's going to be weighed against the feather of justice. And if your heart was heavier than the feather, you would, you know, go to their lake of fire. But if it was lighter than the feather, then you would be rescued, right? Um, and of course, what God is saying there is he Pharaoh thinks he's a god, but God is heavying his heart, meaning he's making his heart unjust. So on the scales of injustice, it would weigh heavier than the feather, right? So okay. God is like mocking that Egyptian notion in a way when he says that he's hardening his heart, he's heavying his heart, right? So there's all these fascinating Egyptianisms that give sense to some of these strange sayings in the Bible. And I try to incorporate those in the text so you read it and it flows. And that's what that's what I think. You know, I think a good story, a good yarn, entertaining, can also sort of embody theology oh, in, yeah. a, in a way that, you know, so academic scholarly reading can't capture, you know? Yeah, I yeah. agree. It brings it to life. Yeah makes yeah. it fresh and it challenges you know a lot of our you know our charleston heston beliefs you yeah. know what i mean <laughs> yeah that's great yeah. i mean that that just makes room for growth yeah the idea of the uh of the uh soul being down in the in the, in the heart and the gut that's uh that's across the entire ancient world i'm sure you've heard of sapuku yeah the harakiri so are you familiar with the with the actual ritual yes so the reason why they pull the blade across the stomach is to release the soul because that's where they believe the soul resides. So it's, yeah. it's, it's very consistent in the ancient world that the soul resides down in the, you know, in the gut or in the heart right near. Yeah. Yeah. There's different, <laughs> like um, the Hebrews actually, I think uh, they saw the, um, they would use, they, they understood the liver as being the, the, or the bowels as being the focus of compassion. Why? Because you, you know, when you feel for someone, you, you know, you get that, 
feeling in your gut, right? Yeah. So the bowel, right? But the liver was also a focus of that. And then also the heart was a seat of the soul, but it was all, you know, all, yeah, all the different um, organs that, that they use, you know, uh, you're right though. The, the ancient world, most of them believed in some degree that it's, it's all in that lower part. And they didn't realize the importance of the brain. I mean, obviously they understood some of it, but they didn't see it the way we do in the modern day world where the brain is now the, the center, you know, it's the system that runs everything. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, I, that's what I love about the ancient worldviews is, is seeing it through their eyes. And that's another goal of mine is to help people to re-see the Bible stories through the ancient worldview, the ancient eyes, because the way they saw things was different than we do. And some of these weird things that occur in the Bible, why, is it, why what is that going on? What does that mean? Right. Mm. You know, uh, what does hardening his heart mean? Um, that what, when you understand that ancient context, it, it suddenly opens up with a, you know, fascinating meaning. And, you know, you don't have to agree with the, the, the cosmic worldview that they have to, right. because it doesn't matter because it's all metaphors for the spiritual truth. Right. And so, you know, if we have to, to modern day Christians, what would we write? We wrote about the, we would write about the brain, but how do we know the brain is the ultimate focal point, right? We may learn more in science or um, uh, the modern day world uh, the way we see the universe is through uh, Einsteinian quantum physics lens, right? And that's going to be different a thousand years from now. Yeah. So you, but you can still look at what we're writing. You still get the same spiritual points, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a whole system. I, I love following science. There's a whole system of science right now um, where they're testing mm-hmm. to find out where the actual consciousness of a human resides because. There is a thought going all the way back to Tesla. There's an idea that the brain is merely the receptacle that receives the consciousness of the person. And it actually resides outside of the person somewhere. It was just really interesting. That would, that would actually make us all avatars, right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, technically, well, yeah, that's the, the the big debate is um, between dualism, which believes that the brain mind are separate entities and the mind interacts through the brain uses the brain. So that's why the brain, you know, can affect the, can affect the mind or the soul, whatever spirit. Right. Um, but the, the philosophical debate is mind and brain, brain, the mind brain problem. And, um, and that's what you're saying. The dualistic notion believes that our spirit or our, our mind is a separate entity that does interact with the physical entity. And so therefore they do affect each other. Absolutely. But they are different. Whereas the modern day version has tended toward the evolutionary view of what's called emergent um, consciousness, which means out of the complexity of our physical brain comes this magical, you know, I mean, ultimately that's what it is. They believe it's a right. magical transcendence, but it's still the brain that's just sort of rising above its own level even though it's still a physical brain and everything's physical and yeah. it's like it's the i think it's just the attempt to try to get away from spiritual truth you know i, I think so because there's a lot of researchers that have completely secular researchers that have gone in and examined people who have with near-death experiences that were able to see events in other rooms near their room that were a hundred percent correct once they came yeah. back yeah. So how do you explain that? Right. So, yeah. 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 It was yeah. really interesting because I also described the momification process, which is fascinating. And there's some things that they, that we don't realize. And for instance, um, um, they would, they would, something that was just 
discovered in more recent years was, was what they did with the brain. So they had this big, long hook and they wondered what did they do with this hook? They stick it up the nose and drag, pull the brain out. It didn't seem like it would work that way. Yeah. And what they real came to realize was no, they stick the hook in there and they whisk it around oh. and make the brains into liquid so they can pour out the nose. And then they just fed it to animals because they didn't think the brains were important. Isn't that funny? Uh, but they would keep wow. all the guts, like you were saying, they would keep all the guts and they would put them in called what they called canopic jars. There's four jars for each of like the heart and the liver and the intestines, et cetera. Right. Right. And each of them had these different God heads on top of them. And, uh, and, and they would take them out of the body because they would rot in the body, but they would right. still put them in the jars and pour in a liquid, which is sort of like a liquid, um, like a honey a re resin, like a liquid yeah. resin to, to as best they can, can, you know, but obviously they just end up becoming liquid, but, <laughs> but they took the stuff out of the body so that they could dry the body to keep it as, you know, um, as, uh, there as possible because they believed that at death, the body, First of all, the body had what's called the Ka spirit, which is sort of like it's your spirit being that is the same as your body, right? And it okay. looks like your body and it interacts. But then when you die, a, a Ba spirit is created. And that Ba spirit has to go on a journey while the Ka spirit stays with the body. And then the Ba spirit has to go on that journey, go and get judged, and then come back for the resurrection of the body. So that's why they tried to keep the body as much uh, together as possible, right? Okay. And so, yeah, they had all these fascinating um, ideas and stuff. But um, uh, so, you know, but in the end, it's fascinating to see how people of different nations see the world. And this isn't a sort of like, look how evil it is or look how wrong it is. It's, and it's an attempt to understand people through their eyes and yet yeah. give ultimate meaning through the lens of the Bible, you know? So okay. I don't judge this stuff. I try to show it for what it is, but then I also try to show it in the context of how the Bible might understand it. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So in this book, this is the third book of the Watchers. How is it related to the previous two book of the Watchers? Yeah, good question. So the Chronicles of the Watchers are standalone novels that also could be, they also do have a series connection because the watchers are these spiritual entities that last throughout all time. So they are in all the books and there is a progress of history going on. But what it is, is Chronicles of the Watchers are kind of like, I'm writing them as standalone novels, but you can and read them that way as well. So, for instance, um, like I, I mentioned already, Chronicles of Nephilim starts with Noah Primeval and goes to Enoch Primordial, Gilgamesh Immortal, then Abraham Allegiant, and then it jumps to, jo uh, to Joshua, right? Joshua Valiant. Well, now you can read Moses against the gods of Egypt before you read Joshua, and it will fit in, in real smoothly. And actually, there are some connections that I have in the novels. So it's sort of like you can read it alone. And enjoy it. But if you really like it, you're going to find yourself wanting to read the next one. In and I, at the end of the novel, I tell you where to read from there. So, uh, okay. so yeah. So it's sort of like Chronicles of the Watchers is filling in holes that I didn't that I left in Chronicles of the Nephilim. Because once you write a series and you have the book numbers out one through eight, 
you can't go back in and stick a book in there and say, oh, this is book 3.5. You know what right. I mean? They, publishers don't let you do that. So if they did, I would just do that. But <laughs> that makes that makes a lot of sense. And it's cool that you're able to uh, expand in these storylines. Uh, it's pretty cool. So the watchers themselves are the same characters throughout. And even though they might change identities. Yes, exactly. Because the idea there is that some of them do change identities or some of them are the same being. Like, for instance, in my Moses novel, um, there I do I did discover that there were there was a story in the Moses story in the Bible that could have had giants involved in it. It doesn't say there were, but okay. the tribe of Amalekites that that um, battled against Joshua in Rephidim while they're on their way to Mount Sinai, that's a story in Exodus. And the Amalekites were known to have some giant, some connections to other giant tribes. Mm. So there may have been some giants in that. But not only that, mm. but there's some, I found some interest. David Roll has some interesting evidence. This is the, what I was telling you about, some archaeological evidence, that there, there was a, a scarab found in Jericho mm. that, that um, which a scarab was an Egyptian... Um, sort of identity, you know, you would use it to seal things and stuff or identity markers, right? And it had the name of Sheshai on there. And but it's Egyptian, right? So you're so the so where's the connection? Well, the book of Joshua talks about several times it mentions three giant Anakim brothers. Okay. Talmai, Ahiman, and Sheshai. Yep. And they were mighty warriors in that time period. And so what, what, I, what I think may have happened, and David Roll argues for this historically, he doesn't believe in the giants, but he believes in the Sheshai in the Bible, may have been the Sheshai who was part, joined the Hyksos shepherd kings, right? So this would be, you know, it could be Amalekites, it could be Canaanites. They invaded Egypt together, and Sheshai was probably a leader of them. And then they set up their rule in Egypt, and then he ultimately comes back to Canaan. So he's there during the times of Joshua, right? Because don't forget, it was 40 years between the Hyksos invade, 40 years from the Exodus before they entered the promised land, because, right? Because they, they, they were afraid, right? And so God said, okay, 40 years in the desert, right? Yeah. So all, during this time period, um, that's when these Hyksos shepherd kings enter Egypt and they changed the worship of the storm god Set of Egypt, who is a god of chaos and a storm god, very famous, very famous uh, god. He's very similar to Baal. Oh. And there's a there's a there's a temple of Baal, Baal Set, I think they call him. They kind of unite him, right? That is the result of these Hyksos influence, which would make sense if they're Canaanites. They bring Baal with them. Yeah. It sets very much similar. Let's make him our God, Baal set or, or, or whatever. And, and let's worship him. And so that all makes sense. If Sheshai is this part of this Canaanite force and then Sheshai ends up back in the promised land. So I bring all that into my no Moses novel, which is a foretaste of what you then get to read in the next novel, which is Joshua Valiant. When I bring Sheshai to the foreground as one of the mighty warriors that Joshua has to overcome. So it's all this fascinating um, storyline based on, you know, based on historical uh, truths or possibilities. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I'd like to point out that the, the second book of the Watchers takes an interesting turn because it's not in Israel. <laughs> so that one I found really interesting. It was a complete departure. Yeah. So one of my goals for Chronicles of Watchers is I'm starting out with a few novels that have to do with the biblical time period. And I don't know how many there's going to be. There might be a couple more. Um, but eventually I hope to branch out into other nations you know, like British Isles, right? Yeah. Or maybe wow. the Americas and um, tell these watcher stories within their religions, right? But Moses fits that because Egypt is a complete different world than Canaan. You know, all, almost my whole, well, Chronicles of the Nephilim series starts in Mesopotamia and ends in Canaan. But Moses occurs in Egypt, which is different gods, Um the novel you're referring to is called Qin, yep. the Dragon Emperor of China. And that's the story of the first emperor of China. And there's some fascinating biblical connections that I think history has shown. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I loved writing it. It was one of my favorites, you know. Um, yeah, so there'll be more of those in the future. But right now, I'm still sort of finishing up some of these biblical. But there, there are there are going to be stories that have to do with gods of different nations we haven't seen yet. So that, that'll be cool. Okay. See, this is why Bible over Bruce is called this, the Gadawa verse, right? Cause it's all connected. <laughs> it is baby. It is. Now I got to say this. I will admit since I wrote the Joshua novel years ago, and then I'm writing Moses, which is the prequel technically. Right. Right. Uh, I did learn some new things and it had to ch- and I had to change the plot a little bit. So I actually went, did a rewrite of the Joshua Valiant novel. So if you buy it now, you'll get the newest version. But um, uh, uh, yeah, so there's actually a newer edition of Joshua that oh. incorporates some of the new material from Moses as well. So very cool. Very yeah. cool. <laughs> so what can we expect coming up soon? Well, um, I'm right now I'm, I'm promoting my Moses novel and I'm trying to decide what my next novel will be. And I've got a t- couple different options that are very different. So I'm not sure. Um, and I do have a movie coming up Uh-oh. in a couple months. Oh, pray tell. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, it's a very controversial movie. So um, our favorites. Oh, even better. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's called My Son Hunter. Go to mysonhunter.com and it's a crowdfunded movie okay. shot in Serbia. We've already shot it. We're editing it now. And it's about Hunter Biden's laptop. Okay. <laughs> the thing that the media covered up and that everyone tried to hide yeah. and all the connections. Well, it's not just a political thing. It's it's a very interesting dramatic thing between the 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 dynamic between Hunter and his father and their his deceased brother. Okay. And it's actually a political satire. It's a feature film, but it's a political satire that is kind of in the vein of, um, oh, like I, I, I think of it as Wag the Dog. I don't know if you remember. That's an old movie. Oh, but man. Oh, I remember Wag it the dog. forever. Yeah. Or Wolf of Wall Street. You know, Wolf okay. of Wall Street. It's yeah. a lot like that where we, it's very, a lot of satire and a lot, so we can make a lot of jokes, but yet also be serious at the same time. I'm no pretty proud of it, but Gina I haven't. Gina Carano? Yeah, Gina Carano's in it. <laughs> she play, yeah she plays a uh, a secret service agent. Nice. No way. Yeah, it yeah. fits. <laughs> mm. You guys will love this. I'll give you the secret story. Nice. 
Uh, that now the world will know, I guess. But <laughs> so, um, so it's a low budget movie, okay? But it's not going to look low budget because they shot it in Serbia, so you get like twice the price, right? That's you know, awesome. So they raised a couple million to make the movie, and um, and so I was go- I actually scripted out this. This we should do this. We should have like some of this stuff offer it for uh, um, awards or something for you know. Um, you know, you have a, a contest or something, but yeah, I, awesome. I have a script version where Gina, you know, we knew Gina Crona was going to uh, play in it. So I wrote this scene where she's a secret service agent who's always watching Hunter. Right. Okay. And then there's this, there's this scene that we had to cut out because of price. It was a fight scene. Nice. Cause I thought, well, we got to have her fight. Cause <laughs> she's yeah, Gina right. Crona. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, right. They're going to these, they're going to these meet with these Chinese um, businessmen to, to make a corrupt deal with China. Right. Right. And Hunter's always shadowed by her. And she looks at the camera. She goes, okay, I know you guys have been waiting for this. You've been waiting to see me kick some commie butt. (laughs) And then, and then there's just all of a sudden it breaks into a, you know, classy fight scene where she knocks them, takes out all five guys. Right. Right. And then it just cuts back and it was all in her mind. You know, she's just like, well, at least you got to see the great fight scene. And then we continue <laughs> on, you know, um, and it was a cool idea. We loved it. But fight scenes are very expensive to shoot, actually. Now, they are. I know They're I know awesome. you guys have done yours, but but when you're doing it in a professional situation, there's all the legal things oh, yeah. and all these like added costs just because you're doing some stupid fight scene. It's ridiculous. Now, if you're doing your own guerrilla style movie, yeah, it doesn't matter. But yeah. But yeah, so unfortunately we could we couldn't afford to shoot it. So um, yeah, I that that should be a story that uh, would be leakable. But right, yeah, <laughs> that's cool. That's an awesome story. Yeah, even when we shot our our indie film, which you saw, um, even when we shot that, so that over the head scene that you saw, um, there's only part of that we could get because it actually invaded airspace. <laughs> because we yeah. have to use a drone to do that <laughs> yeah yeah it's ridiculous um, <laughs> yeah, yeah but these are these are the things you have to deal with you know yeah yeah that's it was incredible. that's that's really cool well man we're looking forward to that now okay mysonhunter.com if you want to find the information on there you know there's still i think they still need money to help distribute it because okay you know look hollywood wouldn't make this movie they wouldn't fund it they wouldn't help us distribute it no you know we're all on our own of course not we're all on our own so we need everybody's help and if you know and look this isn't just a political hit piece it's it's not i mean it's i'm an entertaining hollywood screenwriter i want to make things i don't want to write a story unless it's entertaining yeah Uh, but yeah it is rich with meaning but um, so if you want to help out, I think they're still there's they still are they still need some money, but um, oh, man, they're doing well, well. In this episode, we'll we'll stick that uh that URL in there. Cool, you know? cool. Yeah. And then if you want to get any of my other materials, everything's on Amazon in paper book, ebook, or audiobook. Um, all my novels are you can find out all the information on each of the novels just by going to Amazon. But if you my if you want to learn more about me, um, my website, gadawa.com has you know, all kinds of free, cool stuff there. And, and you could find out all about all the series and stuff. Yeah. Ooh, excuse and, me, that and like I always is coming up. <laughs> and like I always say, you are definitely one of my favorite narrators. So because you're, you're, you're right. Th- I mean, you have inflection, you have nuance, uh, you have different, cool. different voices you bring out characterizations. So. You know, it's interesting you say that because I, because I've been, um, so I'm going back and doing some edit, editing changes in my previous 
Nephilim novels audio wise, mm. because I, I, I just want to update them, so to speak. And I realized my first novel that I ever did though, I was learning. Okay. And I realized, man, I read Noah primeval was the first one and yeah. I read it really fast. Okay. So I'm actually re-recording that. So there'll oh, be cool. a new version of it. If you already own it on audible, it'll automatically update to the new version. Yes. And I'm going to include I, in the first time, the first release of the novel, I did not include my appendices appendixes that were the, the research behind the book. Yeah. I didn't include those. But now I'm going to try to include those in the new version if if Audible lets me. I think they will. So oh, wow. sweet. That'd be great. You are yeah. a busy man because that takes some time, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. you got it, man. Wow. It really does. Yeah, hugely time consuming. Yeah. But I've always I've always thought that your that your audiobooks were underrated because I find them incredible. Me being somebody who travels all day long between jobs, that's how I read books. A large, at least seventy-five percent of the time, I'm doing audiobooks. Yeah, and uh, and I find that incredibly enjoyable because so many audiobooks have absolutely no nuance. It's like really? you have a guy standing there reading oh, the I book know. like that. Oh. It's like, oh, you're killing me. Oh, <laughs> yeah. My my goal was, I wanted to tell it like you're sitting in a campfire and you're. I'm telling you the story. Okay, so then the guy comes up. You know. Yeah, that's just what I want because that's how I want to hear it. So yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's it's like it's like there's there's you and there's uh, a Neil Gaiman. It's like it's like I put you right there, right there. It's like it's like both of you do, yeah, both of you do the same thing. You have this beautiful inflection and characterization and different voices you use. It's like cool, fantastic. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I've always thought that your your audiobooks were were underrated. They're just fantastic. (laughs) Great. Good to hear. Thanks, man. It's good to hear that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Sweet. So everything's on the up, up and up. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. So when the movie comes out, I'll contact you guys and you can hand me on. We can talk about it. Yes. Oh, man, that'll be so cool. That'd be great. In fact, here's what we'll do. We're introducing. Can you get Gina to Skype in? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, I'm the writer. I'm nobody. Writer, gotcha. the writer is nobody. Uh, unfortunately, I would, I would beg even, to differ. It won't even though the genius trying. of it all comes down to the writer, we know that absolutely. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah, yeah. unfortunately, uh, no power. Uh, yeah. Well, at, what we'd love to do because now we're introducing uh, two new podcasts Bible Open Brews Reviews and Bible Open Brews News. What we'd love to do is watch the movie and review it, and then host you on the new Bible Open Brews reviews so we can talk about the movie and how much we enjoyed it. Yeah. Cool. It'll yeah. be out in like March, I think, hopefully. That'd be awesome. Perfect. Yeah. Great. We'll do it. Beautiful. All right. Brian, any last words? No, that's it, man. Thanks for having <laughs> me on, guys. It's always a joy. Yeah. Gumby? Oh, man. Always always a treat, Brian. Uh, appreciate all your work. I uh, hope you really like the bourbon. I do. <laughs> any last Thank thoughts you on that? Again. Would you drink that again? Excellent. Oh, oh, heck yeah, heck okay. yeah! I'm gonna join. I'm gonna share it with my, with my uh, fellow buddies. I don't. We don't drink a lot, but occasionally when we do, I, I, I like to share something new with them. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of. Pr- I'm listen. I'm a proud Texan, so Excellent. it's nice to to have something that I can say. Yep, and we got good whiskey too. There you go. Yeah, and watershed. We enjoyed yours over here in Ohio as well. Yeah, man. <laughs> wow, that was good to the last sip. Right. Yeah. Please feel free to jump on and join us on all of our social media profiles, Facebook, Twitter, you name it. We're on all of them. We have a prevalent Tumblr page. Um, We are currently building out our YouTube page. 
We're just kind of beginning that, but uh, we're getting there pretty quick. So, so check us out pretty soon. I'd give us another month before I have all our episodes uploaded. But yeah, we're building out our, our, our YouTube page right now. And uh, look forward to our two new podcasts, Bible Over Brews Reviews and Bible Over Brews News. We'll be bringing you awesome content. Love you. Godspeed. Peace.